on this week's Bet the Process podcast. This is a first for us. Rufus and I do a podcast where it's not just both of us the whole time, i.e. he isn't there for the interview and he isn't there for the conclusion. But we talk a little college basketball and then we have Jordan Majeski on who is a pretty good college basketball writer. Um, you can find him on Twitter. And uh, I think his blog is called Staring at the Floorboards, but you can also subscribe to his content. Um, and uh, then I give you a few picks at the end. So hopefully they work out. And with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the bet the process podcast it's it's a tilted moment episode because rufus and i actually have a legitimate tilted moment from a sports betting standpoint um we were victims of the ridiculous 0.7 second three-pointer that tcu put up um yeah it was for me i i actually was pretty invested in Gonzaga and I actually took some in the second half. So at least I ended up winning the second half bet. So it made it feel a little bit better. Like if that had gone from four to one, that would have been really, really bad. Um, Well, at least Gonzaga won for the Calcutta for me. Yeah. I mean, and I was, I was kind of rooting for Gonzaga. I have them in another poll. Um, yeah, and I I kind of always root for them. I I like Gonzaga for whatever reason. Um, but uh, Drew, Drew if, Timmy, that guy is, it's it's he's fun to watch. You wouldn't expect. Would, it's like how is well, he actually good? He's you. He's he is you. He like has that same vibe that you have. No, he looks like, like he a, was on the movie Dodgeball or something. He does look like that. What um, what do you think that like where would you in the scale of one to ten put that in a bad like this is a great question because like ultimately the definition of what a bad beat is in a scale of one to ten where would you put that in the bad beat bad beat category i don't know because actually think about this had they not gotten fouled with 0.7 seconds left we're not even talking about this right right what was it it would have been a push wait what was was 0.7 seconds what was the line you got it was it was four and four and a half i had four mostly but i I know four and a half so it would have been a loss Oh, I think, I think we bet it at four and a half. I think it moved down. We bet it earlier in the week or not earlier in the week, but maybe I think it, I think Saturday. there was a small time where four showed and I somehow managed to get the four and then it popped back to, I think it was four and a half. Most places it, at, I, I bet some right before post and it was like four and a half minus one Oh five at that point. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't actually even know what the price we got it at was. I kind of assumed the line was in the like three and a half range or something. I don't know why. And then when I looked at the end, I was like, I mean, I looked in the last minute of the game. Um, so I think that it was lucky that foul happened because there was no chance of winning at that point. But also, if you go back a little bit further, they're up seven inbounding the ball with like 14 seconds to go. Right. That was, and then that you, was inbound sort of the most it, you inbound it to the other dude. Yeah, that was that was just 
Like, well, he said, you like, could have, I know, I, I, I saw the, from his vantage yeah. point, they showed it that way. But you could literally just have thrown a, the ball like down to the other end of the court and turned it over there. They get the ball. They still, there's nothing they can do, right? I mean, with the time left. I mean, so that was, that was one thing you don't want to do. Yeah. I mean, so what did you say on the scale of one to 10? And for those of you guys that don't know what we're talking about, hopefully there aren't very many of you, but the, the essentially Gonzaga was anywhere from a four to four and a half point um, favorite. They were up by five. They were up by four and uh, made got two fouled with 0.7 seconds left, made two free throws. So with 0.7 seconds left, the ball inbounds and, the no one defends the, everybody's the shaking play. hands literally other players are shaking hands yeah did you see that like they were yeah. it was the pleasantries were started and this guy just lets the ball just keep bouncing down the court picks it up halfway between the three-point line and and midcourt and chucks up a three and swishes it yeah and it counts yeah i was like are they going to review that it would have been interesting actually if they had reviewed it because yeah, like you it, you think you think it was fine? He, he, yeah, I, I looked at the replay. He got it off. But the question is, it's like, does the clock operator start it at the right time? It, it all comes. That's why they have this whole thing that says if the clock is under a certain amount yeah, of time, point seven, you're allowed to, to catch and shoot. So what's the what's the cutoff for the catch and shoot? It's like point point five, I think. Okay, maybe point point three is like you can still tip it. I think under anything under that, it's like you can't even do anything. Um. So yeah, maybe. So um, what do you think on a scale of one to ten? eight or nine yeah i would call well so in terms of the actual circumstance of of the last play i mean well no but that's not what you can't you can't actually you have to do it in in total right you have to think about like total it's not that bad of a beat yeah that's that's kind of the way i feel too i'd say i'd say in total it was about a five on the scale of uh of bad beats i mean i think that the 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 end of it being so bad makes it such yeah. that it's it's definitely not just like a whatever like like normal luck but like you know in the second half you would have felt you felt pretty like as soon as Gonzaga actually like made a couple stops you felt reasonable that Gonzaga had a chance to, to cover that game probably like greater than 50 50 so right Look, but you never a, really felt what's that no it wasn't a bad beat like a big blown lead or anything like that but it was it was I, I was saying just that last play the the fact that that there's 0.7 seconds left. And, and you also saw at the end, after that free throw, it almost looked like the guy, it looked like they were just going to inbound the ball and just dribble it out. Right. They, it, look, it didn't look like anybody cared. And, and so just the manner in which that shot happened was, I think that's what it was. Well, what's so, funny is what's funny is I think that if, if it had been the reverse, if that ball had gone inbounded to, um, miles mike miles the the sort of point guard that did everything he i bet he it. just dribbles it i no, i think yeah. he, i bet he just dribbled because he's frustrated and he's like the star this is the guy that's like oh i'm gonna get a sneaky little three-pointer in so whatever yeah it's annoying um, personally so so that i think i was more tilted though at the per, end of the purdue game just because purdue couldn't score yeah it was just so frustrating to watch that <clears throat> and just and and the calcutta stuff like my position in the Calcutta is not. It's funny. The Calcutta. Who do you have m- left? Just Gonzaga. No, we have Gonzaga and Miami. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, you're still fine. I mean, we're we lost seven teams though. What what portion of the of the um of the Calcutta do you own? Do you know what um, percentage? We own two hundred twenty nine thousand. 
So, so you own roughly the same as me. You you own close to you own close to like eighteen percent as much. And how guess. many teams do you have? Uh, I have two teams left. Also, I have like three teams left because I made a trade. I traded fifty percent of of Houston roughly for fifty percent of Bama. Um, oh, I have okay. Texas so you, also. So you just so, want to diversify with the top teams. Yeah. So but you, have, you have top teams left. I mean, I've yes. Miami's not a top team. So Purdue Gonzaga is a top team, but Purdue. All, all three out. of my all three of my teams are favored by like Texas favored by four. Yeah. Houston's favored by seven and a half. Bama's favored by seven and a half. Like all my teams all three are underdogs. Those, te- for me, kind of the key is Texas because I own a hundred percent of them. If Texas w- somehow wins this whole thing over Alabama, which is not a not a completely crazy scenario, then I then I'm going to return a reasonable amount. Um, but um, we we were looking pretty good going into this weekend, to be honest, because like you know like and. <laughs> Houston and and the, and then Marquette and St. Mary's both shooting the bed yesterday really hurt. So I was, I mean, Virginia's loss, actually Virginia's loss might've been the, I had so many tilting moments, Jeff, with this tournament, it hasn't been a fun sweat. I think Virginia's loss was really tilting too. I don't know if you saw the end of that game. I mean, this is Virginia, starting to Virginia feel... was up three. Yeah. No, up two. had the ball with, yeah, I, like I saw what I, I heard what the happened. Guy in I the haven't corner seen the play. Decides to throw he a baseball Clark. pass. Yeah, he doesn't even throw he, it all the way to the other Clark. end of the court. Like he's like he could just hold the ball for five seconds and then call a timeout also. And then there's two seconds left, or you know, wait and get fouled. Instead, he decides to throw a baseball pass like three quarters of the court. It's intercepted by the Furman guy. He passes it. Virginia's defense isn't set, shoots a three, one point game with like a second to go game over game over. it was just like it was it was one of those just it was a dumb decision that didn't make you know and yeah that that was kind of tilting did you know i went to vegas and recorded this thing with david david chang and we did it at the um hoops and hops party at the cosmo and it just made me remember how fun vegas is for march madness you know, I've, I've, I've kind of been talking to people like about this. And I'm like, oh, it's only dudes out there. I don't know why everyone goes it's so crowded and there's only dudes. And I was like, I forgot how fun it is. And I met met a bunch of, uh, you know, on, on Thursday night when I was playing craps, I saw a couple of the Seville guys uh, sizzle. I finally met him in IRL, which was fun. We played some craps and lost a bunch of money, which was which was great. Um and then I saw someone, um, I saw our old friend Vegas watch who used to be Vegas watch back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. but anyways, um, it was, it was, uh, it was fun to be out there. And I think next year we should try to do some sort of bet the process thing out there because, um, I did, a, a listener came up and got some swag for me. He was formerly the CFO of Ameritrade, TD Ameritrade. So he's pretty legit. And he says he like kind of like likes listening to us, was listening on the way over. Um, so that was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's try to think about, because we have a year now in advance of doing some cool bet the process thing out there for March Madness next year, especially given now that you're such a big college basketball aficionado. I am. And so are you. I am. I am. It's, it's, uh, it's been fun to get back involved with college basketball. I, I actually like really love college basketball, even though like the games are so painful to watch sometimes. You know what? So yeah. do I, Jeff. 
I don't know if you know this, but I was a huge college basketball nut in high school. Um, you told me that you used to, you know, score the, 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 whatever the, you said that last week on, you scored the brackets in the back of your math class or whatever. I did. Sometimes no, I, I go the, back and I listen the, to the I podcast. The I, I was the statistician for the high school basketball team my senior year. Cause the, the, uh, the coach of our high school basketball team was also, um, also gave me private tennis lessons. He was the women's tennis coach as well. Coach Mabry. He that was awesome. surprises nobody. Yeah. Else but what might surprise you is that we actually had a really good basketball team. Like we were, we were, we made state final four one year. Um, we got, we got knocked out my senior year by Scotty Reynolds. No, actually I think it was my junior year. They got knocked out by Herndon and Scotty Reynolds scoring like 35 points against them in the regional championship. So one, one thing I think Scotty Reynolds is. Yes, of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where does Scotty Reynolds play? Play Villanova. Oh no. Villanova. Yeah. 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 Believe it or not. I actually was a, I knew all the players and all that way back then. I, I, I was a big Maryland basketball fan growing up. Were you before or after Len Bias? I wasn't, was I born then? Hmm. Okay. So real quickly on the, on the tournament going forward, um, be interesting to talk a little bit about that. Or do you have any insights into it? I assume that you guys still like Gonzaga a fair amount. This whole narrative around priors, um, meaning like Marquette going out, and uh purdue going out uh bore true although i mean thinking a bit more about that and the idea you know i I do think like it makes me think a lot about trying to figure out how to weight um talent more broadly speaking in a march madness model because like a team like arkansas they have real dudes they have dudes that are going to play in the nba um more than a lot of these teams left so, you know, and, and they really showed well, obviously, against Kansas. It'll be interesting to yeah, see. But what about like, you know, Arizona has dudes that are going to play in the NBA. One dude for sure. And they lost to Princeton. Who do you think? Who do you think their dudes are that are going to play in the NBA? Don't they have? I, I don't have the names of the dudes anymore. <laughs> I, I knew it. I, I could t- I could still tell you like the entire rotation for the Maryland Terrapins in like 2001, but I don't think I could tell you at three college basketball players now let's see how many guys they have because i know i know they have talent right and i'm curious don't they, to see don't how they, many they have, of those don't guys. they have one star arizona i thought they, had. they have a few stars they have Balo, who's a really big guy um they have tubelis who may be the guy you're thinking of who's kind of like this euro type long um so let's see okay this is a mock draft of the Let's see how long it takes me to find an Arizona. Jeff, player. I wasn't thinking about. It. I just, I just thought that they were a team that supposedly had a superstar guy. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm exploring this with you, Rufus. I'm not. Okay. So, like Nick Smith is a guy that's slit. You who plays for Arkansas, who is uh, projected to go in the middle of the first round next round next next. Um, UConn's Jordan Hawkins is project to go 14th at the thing i'm looking in arkansas's anthony black is uh, is 11th so like arkansas already has two in the top 15 right that's but is that what we care about or is it more just the baseline quality of you know athleticism etc what do you mean 
Well, I mean, I don't know. Like I don't essentially know. having I mean, guys I, that are having... I, would you rather have... It, it comes down to would you rather have stars and scrubs versus like a team of a bunch of pe- players that are well, but maybe, you don't, not, maybe not top NBA prospects, but guys that could be D-League players. So I, I think my theory on this is that in March, when the lights are on, right? These guys really come to play that are, you know, these sort of like, you know, Arkansas, Ricky Council, they've got like, I've been saying this, uh, I've been saying they have four dudes that are going to play in the NBA. And from what I can see, they have four guys that are projected to be drafted in the top, whatever next, next in the top two rounds next year. So if you have four guys, regardless of your idea of like stars and scrubs or whatever, if you have four dudes that are likely to be drafted in the top two rounds of the NBA of the uh, projected in the NBA next year, that's a, that's a pretty big deal, right? That's a lot of talent. Yeah. So, but that's UConn a lot of has a fair amount of talent also. So if you ever, I mean, UConn has at least two guys that are going to be drafted, um, projected to be drafted. Is so. Drew Timmy projected to be drafted? Like a, se- a think- second round pick, I'm sure. I think uh, probably not drafted. My guess is he's right. Round. He's right up. No, I don't think so. Like I'm, the list I'm looking at him has him ranked 77th. Okay, because he doesn't, he can't play defense, and he's yeah, he's but, he's not that big. Right, have... he's six nine. He's six nine, which is not that big in the NBA. Correct. Right, but I would still rather have him probably than a lot of these other guys that are more talented right now. In, in, in college, co- right? right? In college, that's my point. So yes, but that's different than getting drafted. Oh, your point is my point is we're talking about the NCAA well, tournament here so and the impact on that. It'll be interesting, right? Because now Timmy is going to play against some NBA dudes, right? Like UCLA has probably four guys, three, four guys that are going to be drafted. Does that TCU would be not be have athletic dudes? Uh they they're fine. Those guys are they're they those big men that he got into to foul trouble none of them are none of them are listed to be drafted in the and by this okay this, so by this one mock draft i'm looking i at. think what matters more is not is their defensive ability here because timmy is it's 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 a, a lot of off, it's he's an know, offensive the, guy not a defensive so, guy so bona that's that plays for um ucla there's a reasonable chance that it he will eat timmy up but we'll see i think the, i think timmy gets underestimated I don't think Timmy is underestimated, dude. I think Timmy is I mean, like I, I they, think, they were. I think they, they be... put up a list. They put up a list on the broadcast that had him with like Bill Bradley and Corliss Williamson and like Richard Hamilton. Like he's not underestimated. Like people I think people know look he's at him. Good. People look at him and are like, eh, this guy can't be very good. Oh, this is like that whole white wide receiver thing, right? This yeah, is exactly. the whole Cooper Cup thing, right? Maybe. I mean, I, I I don't think anyone's underestimating him in the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament personally right now. Fair. But this is making me, by the way, really want to bet on Arkansas with all of this. It's a, it's crazy how much how much talent they have. Yeah, Bona. So, so Bona. So I have a Bona. Right. You, though. Go ahead. So my question is because we talked about the impact of priors for the NCAA tournament, but are we also saying that? Are we saying the NCAA tournament is different in some way and priors don't matter as much for like, say the conference tournaments or late in the regular season? Or are we saying that priors typically are kind of undervalued in general late in the season? Um, so 
I I think it's the NCAA tournament to me at least. And again, there's there's very little there's very little science to this. Like we you could we should probably put some science to this, but like I think these dudes know that everyone's watching, know that it's like a big a big you know it's a big moment for them, and I think they're very talented and they step up right. Okay, and so like in a, in a way, you're saying it's an effort thing. Like in essence, their effort isn't a hundred percent. Yeah, effort, focus, like all, focus. like I think, okay. I think, I think, like desire to, you know, yeah, I think so. I mean, and I, I think again, like knowing that you're that the whole world is watching and cares versus it being some, you know, Tuesday night game against Vanderbilt or something, and you know, nobody cares. Um, that's different, right? Yeah, I mean, so you made a good argument there of why, because I why we maybe we should treat the NCAA tournament differently in that regard and why it, the impact of priors might be different. Yeah. So and my why theory, pro- would... why it probably wouldn't be that way in the NIT, for example, it definitely wouldn't be. No, it definitely would not be like the NIT would almost have the opposite impact. Yeah. You would, you would think like the, the, you N- would, the you NIT, would... the NIT is like, I think handicapping the NIT is like handicapping bowls. It's like it's, I think it's similar, but the, the one of the I mean, things that's, that's interesting is like as the NIT goes on, these teams that were maybe not caring as much in the beginning and somehow squeak by, they they start to care. This is again, this is just anecdotal as someone that's watched a bunch of this shit, and like a, someone could probably go and quantify this. But I do th- I do think this notion of you know, like you think about the tournament and you're like, what should I have known that would have made me behave differently? I do think this like Marquette, I, I do think being wary of the Marquettes and the Purdue's of the world is probably sound advice, right? Like the teams that have over that have overperformed their talent. Right. Purdue, Purdue certainly does have like Purdue they, was certainly someone we talked about, right? Yeah. They, and Purdue they have, have like Purdue a has one really, freshman, really good guy, right? They they I have mean, a tall, one really, really big guy. Yeah. They so Purdue has a had to stand also, and hold the ball above his head and p- other people can jump and they can't reach it. It's amazing. The biggest thing that concerned me about Purdue, and you, you know that like I had you guys getting Purdue. You said it uh, 80%, 80% of what my reservation price was. I know you said it was you said it was the best value, but I would absolutely hate sweating watch, watching them. They're awful to watch. And I just, and I personally I, I, did I not. I texted you this. I texted you with like yeah. ten minutes to go in the game, and I said, yeah. I said, you are one hundred percent right about Purdue. This is miserable. Yeah, it was not super fun. I'm sure. And anyway, so so I, they were at you. You got them for like eighty percent of what my true value was for them, and I somehow managed to stay off of them because. You know what the thing that always concerned me is they have freshman guards and like freshman guards and I've seen their freshman guards melt down and like just like their sphincters tighten up, which seemed like what kind of what happened at the end of that game. Um, but yeah, no, I I think be wary of and again, like this is one of those things that you do after the fact and maybe it's narrative driven, but I, I do think like you do want to be wary of these teams that have outperformed their talent. Um I wonder about like this Michigan state Marquette game was, was fascinating. Right. Because if you look at the the difference in price of Michigan state versus, I think Michigan state went for like 17 K Rufus coin, whereas Marquette went for 43. 
And when they played, the line was roughly even. And if you watch those two teams, you would have said those team teams were roughly even. However, remember, Michigan State had to play a real game to get through, whereas Marquette, that's, fair. And, and that's a big part of the pricing. Like fair, fair, Purdue, fair. Yeah. Fair. That was that's that was a bad insight by me. But you but you're, me. you're right in the fact that that alone doesn't explain it. Yeah. And so, um, in essence, the market, the market valued Michigan State higher than than our Calcutta participants did. And who who owns Michigan State? Uh, I think Andrew or someone like okay. that. So, um, you know who's doing really well in the Calcutta? I just kind of like look through Julian's uh, doing really well in the I was going to say David Al, right? Because he has all the 13 to 16s. He's got to be crushing. Uh, David Al's doing, I think, about even. Because he spent a ton of money. He also lost Arizona. He lost Kansas. Uh, so he's lost some big guys. I think he's doing about as expected with the problem of now having worse teams to advance, right? Like it's great that you got these guys through instead of the other guys, but then you have the problem, like, can they actually step up and beat, you know, you would say right now, the favorites are probably what Gonzaga, um, Houston, Bama, UCLA. I mean, UCLA is a one. No, UCLA. Or, yeah. UCLA. Yeah. What's that line now? It was, it's two and a half now, but Gonzaga is a two and a half point favorite. Yeah. Gonzaga I'm must have surprised. taken some money at two and a half. I'm surprised you get, do you guys like Gonzaga? Uh, I haven't. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we've run the numbers this morning. I'm not on the, I don't have to be awake Got to, it. to do that. Got it. Uh, anything else you want to talk about on college? Um, we're going to do kind of a disjointed thing here because Rufus is traveling this week. So we're recording this. Then we're going to do a guest who we're not sure who exactly we're going to have yet. But um, And then I may just do the conclusion myself because you don't necessarily need to. Or maybe we'll just have the end with the guest. Um, anything else you want to talk about on college basketball, Rufus? Um, the Calcutta sweats are real. And so fun. And and I'll say this: I sweat the Calcutta much more than I sweat a regular bet of the same size. I.e., my state, like the Purdue thing, the swing it was not that large. I mean, just because it's a whole can. Right. Yeah, you're a whole. You have a whole bunch of people, and yeah. But it's like because I feel the obligation to all these people too. Yeah, I think I that's mean, why. The- I think that's why. If it was. And, and I guess maybe the public nature of it. No, I think the problem, one of the biggest Calcutta things is you're, you are, you're losing money, but you're also losing the future opportunity for fun. Right. So like the, the idea that your team gets knocked out and you no longer get to root for them. And you know, that there's this really fun thing that you, you do. And all of a sudden now you're not going to, it's a bummer. Right. So that's a good point. I mean, I feel, I feel reasonable about my UCLA futures, I guess. Like I feel if I, if you were going to pick um, two teams right now to win it all, who would they be? You could just pick any, regardless of regardless of future. Houston regardless. and Alabama. You would take both, obviously. Them. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I would probably take Houston. I mean, Houston just looked so good coming back against Auburn. I don't know if you watched that game, but they just. They just looked like they had dudes all over the court that could just, I mean, they just were like blocking shots, making shots. Like they just looked like men in that game. Um, 
and you know bama looks somewhat similar and yeah a houston, a houston bama finals would be good for me um as long as texas wins their next game so uh yeah i would probably i guess i would probably take i might i might sprinkle in a little ucla but we'll see that might be that might be wishful thinking um yeah. all right well rufus uh have a great vacation um we you will we will be welcoming in a guest and then i will probably do my conclusion alone on the other side we now welcome in jordan majewski am i am i saying that correctly hopefully I'm it's majewski but majewski. Uh, yeah, silent w silent w you don't see very many silent w i guess you do yeah it's actually right. a polish name where and we're i'm i don't i never pronounce it the correct uh polish pronunciation anyway so what's it's the polish pronunciation Bayevsky. oh i would not have yeah known that. that just blows too many minds that's cool though right like because if you have one of those names that no one like my name is two letters but still people manage to ask me how to spell it so that's always <laughs> a good one yeah um tell me a little bit how you got started in college hoops and give us a little bit of your background um, yeah, so I just was a fan, basically. Um, just watched it my whole life. Um, and then kind of uh, with Twitter, you know, coming around, I had a, uh, I just kind of started tweeting my thoughts out, got a little bit of a following there. Um, and also had this, you know, pretty simple blog that I maintain, where I just break down matchups daily. And um, that's about it. So what's your process for sort of like breaking down games and, and thinking about games because obviously you have pretty elaborate write-ups on these games around things like drop coverage and things like that like how do you how do you what's your process around coming up with the content for that yeah so my main primary angles are i like to kind of blend um analytics and uh schematics and so that's what i try to accomplish with every matchup you know not just simply like you know, who rebounds well or who shoots the three well, you know, why do they shoot the three well? Um, you know, what kind of uh, schemes do they run to shoot the three well? Or, um, you know, why do they defend pick and roll so well or not so well? And just a mashup of, uh, you know, why teams do things the way they do and how they do things the way they do. Where do you think there's a, off, like, are there maybe three areas that you've seen over the time that, you find inefficiencies or you find advantages over the typical analytical systems, i.e. the the pure numbers versus someone that actually watches games? Yeah, I think three-point shooting is a big one. You know, you hear a lot about three-point shooting defense, which is largely luck-driven, but also, you know, if you're um, allowing a lot of threes, there's going to be a lot more opportunity for people to shoot, you know, uh, a high percentage against you. And so, uh, you know, there's the, I think three point percentage is certainly one of those. And um, generally with the ad, the rise of shot quality, you can kind of get a sense of uh, where a lot of those inefficiencies are between, you know, Kinpom isn't just the end all be all of, uh, you know, analytics databases now with synergy and shot quality, especially with synergy becoming so much more accessible. You know, it used to be just a kind of um, team and coach service where you had to, you know, be associated with a team to be able to access it. And so now with that, you can find out, you know, why a team 
does allow a lot of shots at the rim. You know, is that scheme based or is that because they can't stay in front of anyone on the ball, you know? And so it, it, you know, it can kind of, you can kind of match up, you know, why is, um, you know, like with drop coverage, drop coverage is all the rage in college basketball right now, which is, you know, largely a copycat uh, league. And so you can kind of figure out, you know, why, uh, a team is allowing so many mid mid range shots or they're allowing so many three pointers and it's, you know, largely scheme based. So I think that's where I can kind of find some inefficiencies. It's not just because, you know, they're letting this happen because they're bad at something they're letting it happen by design. So just, just is drop coverage essentially, you know, playing back on a pick and roll and allowing the mid range and not, you know, having to sort of end up switching and chasing. Right. It's not having exposing your big, um, to that, to a switch or to be, you know, switched out on the perimeter. And so you drop your big and, you know, kind of dare someone to come into the rim and challenge them or take that mid range shot. And obviously with the rise of analytics, everyone is all about, you know, avoiding the mid range on offense and forcing teams to shoot in the mid range on defense. And is the theory that the guy that's trailing can bother a three pointer if that's what they end up taking precisely. Got it. Interesting. Um, okay. So now that we've got some, some basis for this, maybe we can use some of these new tools to talk about the games and we're going to go through each game for anywhere less than three minutes. So we have Michigan state uh, who is now favored by two over Kansas state. Um, and, you know, Ken Palm, I think has this line as Kansas state should be the favorite in this game. So clearly there's some, thought that there's some March Izzo happening here or Michigan state's doing something different. Do you see something that they're doing different or like, do you think that's warranted for now Michigan state to be a favorite in this game? Um, You know, this is a, as the line sort of indicates is a pretty much one of the major toss up games this coming weekend. But uh, you know, I think it opened as Kansas state as a slight favorite and then quickly flipped. But um with Michigan state, they just have such elite shot makers in the mid range and going back to what we were just discussing, that's a lot of where defenses are designed to give up their offense now. So, you know, if Tyson Walker keeps hitting these jump shots and he's done it all year, so there's no reason to think that he can't, they're tough to beat because they're exploiting the soft areas of defenses now. And, uh, that's exactly what Kansas state does. They give up the mid range. You know, they're a very analytic, um, coherent team on both ends of the court. They have one of the highest rim and three rates in the country, and uh, they want to give you, force you into the mid-range defensively. And for all of, you know, uh, Izzo is getting too old for the game and all that, he he sort of um, stumbled into exploiting the soft mid-ranges with his elite mid-range jump shooters. So, you know, it's not, I don't think it's so much like, you know, Izzo is March or anything like that. I think he just has elite mid-range shot-making guards, and that's why Michigan State is where they're at currently. Did that help them a lot in the Marquette game? Because I'm assuming that a Shaka Smart coach team has a fair amount of analytics based in their, you know, gameplay. Absolutely. And Marquette is uh, extremely similar to Kansas State in, you know, what they want to give up uh, defensively and how they operate offensively. 
you know, uh, Kolik is basically Noel. And, um, you know, this is a matchup that Michigan State can obviously exploit with the way they shoot the ball in the mid-range. Um, and so, you know, Kansas State, of course, has – it's not like they're – they have a dearth of shot makers themselves. Obviously, we just saw Marquis Noel just completely pick apart Kentucky. They tried every sort of coverage on him. You know, they initially came out trapping him on the ball screen. He, which, I mean, Calipari never traps a ball screen. So I, I was just taken aback by that. And so I knew that, you know, even Cal recognized that he had to switch something up on this guy. That didn't work. You know, he started uh, when they, he would, could simply split it or then they went into drop. That didn't work. And then they eventually um, started putting them all on side ball screens to get Oscar Sheway to guard him where he would have less help out on the side. And that's when the game, that's when Kansas state took over the game in the second half. So, you know, Tang is an absolutely brilliant adjuster in game. And, uh, you know, I don't know if Izzo is, he's not going to adjust basically. (laughs) So it's, that's a great matchup to watch, you know, the in-game dynamic from the sidelines there. Got it. So maybe Michigan state comes out early and, hit some mid ranges and, but obviously Kansas state knows that that's what they're going to do. So it'll it'll be interesting to see what they, what the chess match plays out early on. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like, you know, Kansas state is just going to willingly let Walker, you know, just fire away from the mid range all game. So yeah, exactly. It'll be totally uh, matchup base and in game chess moves. Okay. Let's move on to UConn minus three and a half over Arkansas. Um, you know, UConn's a team that I think this is an interesting game to me because UConn is a team to me that, you know, obviously Ken Palm has very high. Um, I think he says this line should be higher uh, than the three and a half that it is. But Arkansas is an interesting team because they've got four dudes that um, probably will play in the NBA, right? And, and you know, like are in most mocks are in the top two rounds this coming year. So the the idea that talent comes to play in March um, how, how do you see this matchup? Um, do you, I read something that you think Arkansas can force UConn into some adjustments. Is Hurley ready for that? And, and, and do we actually like Arkansas and their talent here? I know UConn has some real dudes too, that'll be in the NBA. So there, there's, a, there, this may be the, the matchup with almost the most talent in this, um, in, in this round. I don't, if that, I don't know if that's true, but looking at, looking at just some of the mock drafts, it seems like that might be true. Right. Yeah. And so with Arkansas, you mentioned, you know, their talent kind of rises to the top in March. And that's it. When the uh, bracket was posted on Selection Sunday, I noted that I think Arkansas is going to give Kansas a lot of trouble in the second round because they can exploit the Kansas hard hedge and the Kansas switch because they have so many guys who can create an isolation and Kansas doesn't have enough quality isolation defenders. And I think UConn kind of can run into that same problem here. You know, they have some attackable guys, you know, Andre Jackson's a great individual defender. You know, he'll probably get Ricky council, but who gets Davis, you know? Um, And so the other side of that is Arkansas gets lost often defensively in rotation when they can't just pressure the ball and ice ball screens. So uh, Hurley for all his, you know, detractors, runs really good offensive sets. He knows how to get Hawkins open. He knows how to uh, feed Sonogo in um, advantage situations. 
And so they're going to get Arkansas defending in rotation. They're going to have to double Sonogo. And so it's going to be both teams kind of playing against the weaknesses of uh, the individual defense. And like you said, there's a lot of talent on the floor and, you know, this should be a high level game. And uh, I think that eventually UConn's um, ability to get Arkansas defending in rotation wins in this game, but the isolation matchups are a problem for UConn. All right. What about we got Tennessee minus five and a half over FAU. Um, you know, this is a case like I think people were concerned about Ziegler being out and and Barnes' sort of track record. Um, you got Tennessee's size against FAU. Um, are the Vols simply too big for FAU here? I think that's what it ultimately comes down to. You know, FAU is so small, one through four. And then you've got for Tennessee, you know, elite defenders who can defend on the perimeter who are, you know, six, seven, six, eight, six, nine. And that's a problem when your four guy out there is, uh, you know, six, four Nell Davis, which is, you know, a, a mismatch. You can argue that, you know, FAU is going to spread them out with their speed and quickness and kind of pull a, what FDU did to um, Purdue, you know, but that doesn't work against Tennessee because their guys are so big, so long, and so athletic. But um, I noted uh, in my write-up of this that Tennessee can get um, exploited against teams that have elite spacing, and that's exactly where uh, Mizzou and Vanderbilt, who has almost an identical playbook to Florida Atlantic in terms of their ball screen motion, um, is that's where Tennessee kind of got exploited, where you spread the court out against them and make that, um, you know, elite recovery distance even farther for them. And that's how you can kind of negate their length advantage. Um, but, you know, and we saw this against a much bigger team with Duke, Tennessee just, you know, pounded them into submission. They were the physically tougher team from the jump and Duke never adjusted to that. And we'll see if FAU can do that with even less size, you know, um, but at any point, a Tennessee offense can go stagnant and, you know, that can open the door for an FAU team who has so many shooters. So giving five and a half with an offense like Tennessee always seems a little problematic, a little dicey, a little dicey. Yep. Okay. Let's move on to UCLA. My minus two and a half, three is what I'm seeing over Gonzaga. Um, Gonzaga is an interesting team. I think, you know, we, we did a Calcutta and, um, a bunch of the, I think Gonzaga was maybe the third or fourth highest team in the, in the Calcutta. Um, some of the professional betters in the Calcutta really liked them. Um, and we, we talked a little bit to Ken Palm about sort of them as a team that, you know, the, 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 it's pretty simple, right? It's really good offense and really bad defense, um, how does that play out here against the UCLA team that is just much better balanced, I would say? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you summarize it pretty well. Gonzaga's offense is not the issue. Um, it's that their defense can't defend in pick and roll and they can't defend in isolation, which is a really big problem against UCLA, who isolates their wings, um, uh, you know, specifically Hawkeye. And then um, they put Tiger in uh, pick and roll. 
And so, you know, every year we see this in March where Timmy can't defend in ball screens over and over and over again. And so they, the other issue is that UCLA is not going to let them run. They're an elite transition defense. And so then Gonzaga is going to have to, you know, be able to consistently execute in the half court, which they can do. Of course, they're a great offense, but they, um, that transition attack is not going to be available to them. So it comes down to um, UCLA who wants to kind of goad you into those jump shots and Gonzaga being able to hit those jump shots. So, you know, they can obviously do that. They have some elite jump shooters, but, um, you know, UCLA's hard hedge is the best in college basketball. And so they're not going to let them just, you know, pick and roll them or anything like that. UCLA or Gonzaga is going to have to hit jump shots to win this game um, and do it in the half court as well. So if you go back to this idea of, uh, you know, Timmy being kind of played off the court potentially, um, how are UCLA's matchups against Timmy on the offense? Like, are, do you feel like Bona can cover him one-on-one or is this, um, is is that like athleticism size or is the guile of Timmy going to be still a problem? Yeah, I think Timmy will get his, you know, in a half court setting, he's just got such uh, a deep and, um, refined post-move repertoire that it's going to be, you know, you just can't expect anyone, Bona or whoever, to, you know, defend him one-on-one in the post effectively for 40 minutes. But, you know, it's going to be the fact that UCLA can limit these possessions and, you know, not allow Gonzaga to supplement their offense with transit their transition attack. Yeah, so it seems like, UCLA seems like a reasonable, I mean, it's, it's that that's probably why the the line is going up. Um, but of all the things we've talked about so far, that one seems like the best. Um, yeah. Bam, Bama minus the seven and a half over SDSU San Diego States uh, defense. Can they challenge Bama? Um, certainly they're sort of elite interior. Um, is it harder, I guess, for them? Uh, and, and, um, Sorry, one actually question going back to the Gonzaga game. Was there anything in that in the in the first two games? Because one of the things we talked about in the Gonzaga preview with Ken Palm was the idea that maybe Gonzaga, because defense is so effort related, could play better defense in the tournament. Was there anything in the first two games that made you think that's true, or was their defense as bad as always? Um, you know, a lot of that is uh, opponent based. Um and I did, you know, you're, you're right in general that there is, um, a, you know, step up like in defensive intensity and where, especially with the upper tier teams, you know, power six is where a team, uh, Miami's a good example last year, maybe not a great defense all season long, but then, you know, it's tournament time. These guys start de- defending with intensity, but, um, you know, Timmy is just such a incapable defender in general that I don't know. And TCU didn't have the personnel to exploit him in that way. And in a sense, UCLA doesn't really either, you know, their front court isn't like, you know, especially at the five at a, an offensive juggernaut by any means. So, um, you know, it, it's definitely possible. I think Gonzaga is defending better generally, but still extremely exploitable, you know, key positions. Okay, moving on to San Diego State, BAM, as I mentioned, interior defense. Is there any sort of anything that makes you think that 
the sort of interior defense is less important here than potentially the three-point defense, which seems harder to prevent against an Alabama, meaning like San Diego State's strengths may not necessarily limit Alabama as much as they might another team. Yeah, so this is, I think, um, kind of under the radar, the most interesting matchup of the Sweet 16, because with Alabama, you want to, you know, keep them off balance. It's well known what Oates' game plan is. It's rim and three. You know, he's on the forefront of all that. And, you know, absolutely no mid-range. Everything's, uh, you know, comes at the rim or it's a three-pointer. So if you can keep them off balance in that regard and keep them out of transition, which San Diego State is the best in the country at in terms of limiting transition attempts, you kind of want to chop away, you know, one or two of those things if you can. And San Diego State's going to take away two of them um, in terms of the rim and transition. And so when you turn Alabama into just a strictly jump shooting team, you're going to give yourself a, you know, much more reasonable chance of beating them because they can be extremely streaky from out there. Um, They also have one of the best individual and most versatile uh, defenders in the country in a rope that they can put on Brandon Miller, which is a big deal. Uh, You know, a rope is uh, six, seven, six, eight long arms can defend all over the floor. So, you know, they can slow them down in transition, take away the rim and defend them in ISO. So, you know, you're already kind of uh, limiting their offense a bit. And the question then becomes, we're back on that mid-range area where um, San Diego State takes a bunch of mid-range shots. And you can watch them, when you watch them play, you're like, oh my God, that was a, (laughs) you know, terrible shot by Bradley. What is this guy doing? But, you know, that's what's going to be given to them here. And so if they're making those shots, you know, that's that's San Diego State's wheelhouse for better or for worse offensively is the mid-range. And that's precisely what Alabama, who's the strictest back to drop coverage, the strictest drop coverage defense in the country. So it sounds to me like we have our second play here, maybe, which is San Diego State plus the seven and a half. Um, Yeah, I am. I am on San Diego State. Okay. Um, Houston minus the seven and a half over Miami. Um, you know, I guess the question I have for you is what makes Houston so good? I read something where you maybe said something about them being overrated. Is that true? And sort of like, is this, you know, like with, with, how does this game shape up to you? Um, certainly Houston that comeback against Auburn, they look ridiculous uh, as coming back there with, sort of the sheer force they played with in that game. Um, How does this game shake out to you? Yeah, so um, anytime I've talked about Houston being overrated, it's um, strictly their offense and their offensive shot selection, which is um, kind of poor at times. But And you just referenced the Auburn second half. When you see this team play um, at their peak, you just realize they're on a different level. Uh, You know, we've seen that a few times this year. And if they're playing like they did in the second half against Auburn, they're the best team in the country. And so with Miami, well, let me start with this with Houston. You have to, um, you're not going to be able to play through the post at all against Houston. Their post traps are the best in the country. It's the most um, well-designed defensive scheme in the country. And it's just not an option. Miami doesn't play through the post. They don't care about the posts. So you know, that's kind of, it's uh, not going to be an issue with them against Houston. 
The problem is when you can get the ball into the post against Houston, you can sort of scramble them if you have an elite um, playmaker at the five, which um, Omir isn't. He's not, you know, he's not a traditional center by any means, really, but he's not, you know, a good playmaker with the ball. Jordan Miller, however, is. And so if they can kind of um, get him the ball in the middle of the court and get Houston scrambling defensively, they can do some things. And I think a lot depends on what Miller does. Houston also has had some problems with um, like bigger playmakers on the perimeter who can um, Houston doesn't, it's kind of a misleading um, term with Houston. They don't trap ball screens and it looks like they do, but they're actually kind of um, bringing their big up a little bit and forcing you to play towards the sideline. And so it looks like they're kind of bringing a trap on the ball screen, but they're not. They just are so aggressive with the way they defend in certain areas of the floor. Um, and so if you have someone who can kind of handle that and then break them down off the dribble, like Alabama has done um, in back-to-back uh, -back games against Houston, they can be, once again, you can kind of work that defensive scramble against, use it against them. And then all of a sudden these shots on the perimeter pop up with ball movement and, uh, you know, kind of forcing them to recover um, a little quicker than they imagined or thought that they were going to have to. And so, you know, Wong is a big outstanding point guard or outstanding guard who can handle that. And Poplar has emerged in that area too. So they have, Miami has the pieces sort of, you know, you can kind of see it, but you could also see Houston just dominating them physically against a smaller front court and just completely dominating the glass. Although Miami humiliated my Indiana Hoosiers on the offensive glass the other night, but um, you know, Houston's an entirely different animal rebounding wise. Is there anything to look for early on in that game to see whether Miami is able to sort of do what you're saying um, in terms of getting Houston to scramble or if Houston does look like their, you know, shot selection or, you know, their, their is questionable. Like where, yeah. what is the, what, what's the thing to look for in this sort of chink in, in Houston's armor? I would say how open um, a guy like pack is because that means Wong is able to handle that um, initial ball pressure and, and, or Miller is um, moving the ball quick out of the uh, post trap or, um, you know, middle of the floor trap that Houston's going to bring. And so if they're getting open looks early, that means that they're making Houston scramble um, more than they're comfortable with or having forcing their recovery. And because Houston's always going to scramble, that's the whole point of their defense. But if they're recovering, you know, slower out of the scramble, if those shots are more open than you think they should be, um, then Miami's doing what they should. But for Houston, Miami, you know, they're not a good defensive team, but they are great in their ball pressure. That's something Houston's kind of immune to. They have, um, you know, just these big, strong, burly guards who can handle that. And their shot selection might not be great, but that doesn't really matter against Miami if you're able to handle that ball pressure they'll bring. Okay. Let's move to Creighton minus the 10 over Princeton. Uh, Princeton obviously surprise everyone um in the first two games my question to you in this one is why what does creighton have that mizzou and zona didn't which makes them either less or more susceptible to the princeton 
upset than Mizzou and Zona were? Well, I think having time, although Arizona obviously had time, but I think they just took Princeton too lightly and didn't, you know, get, get the job done and their guards were pretty awful. But uh, Mizzou didn't have time, and it was clear that they didn't scheme properly against Princeton at all, especially in the first half. It was like they didn't watch any tape at all on Princeton. It was kind of shocking. And so, obviously, Creighton has more time for what Princeton's going to run. Um, but the interesting matchup here is their um, point forward, point center, Tosan, who's going to be able to draw Kalkbrenner out. We've seen Kalkbrenner struggle when he's forced to back again. We're back to uh, drop coverage here, get out of his deep drop and defend a guy. Um, we saw that against Villanova, for example. Now, Villanova drew him out in pick and roll, which Princeton isn't going to do. They're going to, you know, put Tosan back, you know, at the have him create um, from the top of the key. And he just finds all those, you know, Princeton motion cutters so well um, if you start to overplay his dribble or he can beat you off the dribble. So that's going to be the big challenge. If he can do that against Kalkbrenner, Princeton has a chance. Otherwise, Creighton, you know, will overwhelm them uh, on the other end. Okay. And then finally, we're going to go to Texas minus four over Xavier. Uh, does this simply come down to Xavier's ability to guard Texas one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, yep. I think that's exactly um, the issue here. You know, we saw Kennesaw State really just ball screen, penetrate and kick against them all game long until, uh, you know, Colby Jones finally stepped up and played some defense. We saw uh, Kunk, uh, Adam Kunkel accuse Boom of playing poor defense, which is kind of insane when, you know, Kunkel, who's not known for his defense, is telling someone else on the team that they're playing terrible on ball defense. Uh, that's kind of a, a red flag there. So, you know, you've got to be able to stop Carr, um, uh, Allen, Rice. Like these guys are too big for Xavier, basically, and they only have one good defender on the perimeter. But Jerome Hunter is an excellent defender who's kind of changed the complexion of their defense a little bit um, with Fremantle out. So, but, you know, he can take Allen or Rice and that's it. Then you got to, you know, worry about Hunter and Carr. Um, there and then the emergence of Disu is just such a huge deal for Texas because they didn't have anything at the rim really, um, besides what they created off the dribble or out of their motion. And Disu is a legitimate threat at the rim, back to the basket, can face a basket. Um, so you know, can he match up with Nunji? I think he, I think he can beat Nunji, you know, on the offensive end, but Nunji's, um, versatility and mobility on the other end is going to test him. So, you know, I think they both teams have some matchup advantages offensively here, but Xavier's defensive issues, I think are more severe than Texas's. So maybe Texas minus the four. I think what's interesting is like that Texas game against, um, against Penn state, they were what one of 13 from three point range or one something 13. Like that? Yeah. Yeah. So how often do you win a game when you're one of 13 from three point range? So exactly impressive yeah. to, to be able to do that. Right. Right. And you know, they were kind of controlling that game for the most part, despite that shooting Penn state made a run, hit some shots, even took the lead briefly, but you know, Texas ended up closing it out. And like you said, by not hitting a three. So that's, you know, uh, yeah. 
hard to do, especially against a, a great um, scheme preparing team like Penn State, especially on a quick turnaround. Shrewsbury has been just phenomenal on no rest or one day rest uh, scheming. So that was a, a good sign for me overall that they were able to win that game uh, despite the horrific three point shooting. All right. So I'm going to get you out of here after this one last question. Based on what you've seen so far, who cuts down the nets in two weeks? Houston. I think they have another level that the um, other teams don't have. Got it. Okay, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Sorry I couldn't uh, make it the initial invitation, but it's I really got to run for school board or something to get <laughs> spring break not on the first week of the ncaa tournament and stuff like that so um yeah thanks for inviting me all right thanks man yep so that was jordan majeski hopefully i'm saying that right um and that was a hopefully an interview that you guys enjoyed i know that we have had um some trouble getting on sort of these more um x's and o's type people but Hopefully that gave some interesting things to think about. It, it made me think about really three main games that I'm kind of interested in potentially betting from a, from from at least from the content that he said. UCLA minus the two and a half. It seems like it's getting a little bit inflated, but maybe if it goes down and you can grab UCLA at close to even over Gonzaga. Um, San Diego State plus seven and a half, and, and maybe that goes up. Um, you know, the idea that uh, their defense can can challenge um, this this uh, NATO's offense and force NATO's into the exact things that they that they don't want to do, um, i.e. the mid range. And then um, Texas uh, minus the four over Xavier, maybe Texas's win over Penn State is even more impressive, given the fact that they won, were one for 13 from three point range and um you know, we're playing against the Micro Shrewsbury team that um, has been so good um, off short rest, off short prep and whatnot. So maybe those are my three plays. Um, Rufus is traveling, so he's not here for the conclusion of this. Um, but as always, uh, thanks for joining us um, and uh, good luck in your Sweet 16 stuff. Um, and we'll talk to you all again next week. Crunching all the numbers in the simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are about to end just running off a of leaded.